Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this weekend is Labor Day, and most, if not, uh, well, probably most students are, pro- are back in school. It used to be they would wait till after Labor Day, but now schools are starting even beforehand. But, but either way, students very soon are going to be getting back into the swing of things, into the swing of another school year. And so I thought it would be interesting, an interesting exercise, if all of us just spent a moment here thinking back to our school days. And thinking back to a moment where I'm sure all of you can remember a moment like this, where you had a big test coming up, a test that would perhaps determine your grade for the whole semester. And imagine now that this test isn't your best subject. For me, that would have been math. Maybe for you, it was something else like English or history or science or something like that. But in order to pass this test, you're preparing, you're spending a lot of time studying And you have to pull out all the ethical tricks in the book. Uh, And maybe one of the things you try is to just memorize, stone-cold memorization of facts. And the thinking is that if you could just memorize the facts, memorize the answers you'll know you need, memorize the equations or the dates in history or whatever it was, that there could be a chance then that when you got to the test, then you you could put down the right answer on the test paper. Now, perhaps you had this experience as well. The the trouble with memorization, of course, is although you may be able to get the right answers on the test, in the end, you may not have truly understood the subject matter. Well, I bring all this up today because in our gospel reading today, Simon Peter had just gotten the answer right on the test. In the verses immediately before this, what we heard last week, Peter had made that great confession when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds gloriously, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We heard about this climactic moment in Matthew's gospel because for several chapters before that, that had been the question being asked and answered by Jesus. Who is Jesus. And and there were lots of opinions. There were lots of potential answers. But Simon Peter got the answer right. He passed the test. Jesus is the son of the living God. He is the Christ, the Messiah who had been promised to Israel, who had now come. But today, what we find is that although Peter may have gotten the answer right, he still didn't truly understand the subject matter Before him. And so last week's gospel reading in in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, it ended with Jesus strictly charging his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, which is an interesting command right after Peter has the correct answer about who Jesus is. So why the mystery? Why not be shouting this answer from the rooftops? Well, it's because it becomes clear that although the disciples could vocalize the right answer about Jesus, they would still need to learn what that actually meant. Which is why verse 21, our gospel reading today, starts by saying, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
You see, Jesus was teaching them what being the Christ, what being the Messiah truly meant. Verse 21 is actually what many commentators and scholars of Matthew note is the turn in the entire gospel. In your own Bibles, you can even draw a line between verse 20 and 21 because there's a distinct difference between what came before and what comes after. Before verse 20, Jesus' identity was being revealed by the Father to those who were around Jesus, like with the disciples and the crowds. And then after verse 20, Jesus is teaching what that identity meant, what being the Christ truly meant, which is why we see the theme of Jesus's death and resurrection show up and be prevalent for the remainder of the gospel. It said Jesus began to show his disciples because he would do it again and again. Undoubtedly, the disciples would have had at this point many thoughts, many opinions, many imaginings what they thought the Christ should look like and what they thought the Christ should be doing. And now that that he was here and now that he was telling them what he was going to do, a Christ who was going to suffer and die so that he might be raised again did not fit into those preconceived notions. So Simon Peter decides to say something to Jesus. And, And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus Uh, He takes Jesus aside as if all Jesus needed was a little correction, a little pep talk, perhaps. And, And Peter rebuked him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter had heard God's divine plan for Jesus, and Peter's immediate reaction is to deny it. To deny what Jesus told him, to rebuke his Lord, and to offer Jesus what he feels is a better alternative. Jesus reveals the way of the cross to Peter, and Peter feels it lacks a little glory. The sinful audacity of Peter cannot be overstated here, as evidenced by Jesus' own reaction to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was attempting to dissuade Jesus from his mission to die and be raised again. And that simply wasn't just misguided. It was directly opposed to God's plan of salvation. And it goes to show us that when it comes to God and his plan and his son, Jesus Christ, There is no middle ground. There is the truth that is in Jesus Christ as revealed by the Father through the Holy Spirit. And everything else is the opposite of the truth, which is nothing less than diabolical, nothing less than the workings of the devil himself. And there's nothing in between. It's either Jesus or nothing. Last week, when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, we said how this confession that Peter makes still today stands in opposition to all that the world is saying about Jesus. The world might say that Jesus is simply a good man or a good teacher or even a good prophet. But saying anything about Jesus without also saying that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, the one sent to save us from our sins, anything less than that is insufficient. That was last week. This week, Jesus explains what being the Christ 
truly means. But notice, this is not in opposition to what the world says about him. Rather, it's in opposition to what the disciples, the followers of Jesus, say about him, particularly Peter. And so today we consider what it is exactly that we think it means for Jesus to be the Christ. How often it seems that we know the right answer, and yet how often still it may seem that we don't truly understand who he is and what he does for us. Unfortunately, there is no lack of errant explanations about Jesus, even among Christians today. And sadly, you'll find these among the teachers and the pastors and the authors in Christianity. For instance, Christians today describe, may describe Jesus as a personal life coach, that his primary purpose, as people conceptualize it, is to sit on the sidelines and, and give us the encouragement that we need, the strength we need to make it through each and every day. Or other Christians describe Jesus as a spiritual handyman, someone we might call on, that his primary purpose is to come into our lives when we have problems and to fix our problems and our shortcomings and to make everything run smoothly in our lives again. Or other Christians conceptualize Jesus as the great present giver in the sky or something like that, and that his primary purpose is to reward us with various material blessings in this lifetime, that all Jesus wants for us is to be happy and healthy and wealthy in this life, living our best lives now. You find all kinds of teachings in the various corners of Christianity. And what this tells us, at the very least, is that we always have to be careful. We always have to be discerning, comparing what others say about Jesus to what God has said about Jesus, what Jesus says about himself in his word. The biggest problem with all of those opinions I just mentioned is that none of them require a Jesus who goes to Jerusalem to suffer many things to be killed, and to be raised on the third day. No, instead, these opinions are more concerned with demanding from Jesus the things of man, the things that would satisfy our earthly desires and our earthly priorities. But Jesus says in our gospel today, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? In stark contrast, Jesus says that the things of God have to do with the Christ who must suffer, be killed, and be raised again. And why is that? Why does Jesus have to do these things? Well, these things are necessary, Jesus says, because he has come to deal with the ultimate problem from which we suffer. And the ultimate problem isn't that we lack encouragement or that we face job problems or that we might have financial shortcomings or even that we aren't as healthy as we'd like to be. No, the ultimate problem that we face, the problem that we can do nothing about on our own is that we all are dead in our trespasses. We are all ungodly and by nature enemies of God. Our problem is our sin and our sinful nature. 
And in our sinfulness, we make demands of Jesus to be the type of Christ we would like him to be, to do the things of man we'd like him to do, to satisfy what our sinful nature deeply desires, that Jesus would bring me a certain level of happiness and wealth and health. But in his mercy and grace, Jesus came not to be the Christ that we would have chosen, but rather to be the Christ that he knew we needed. To do the things of God he knew needed to be done. To satisfy not our sinful desires, but the will of his Father who was in heaven, which provides for us eternal satisfaction that we could have never known that we needed, much less attempt to provide for ourselves. Jesus willingly suffered for you, and he took your sins to the cross so that he might forgive you. He was rejected so that you would never be rejected by God. He was condemned so that you would never be condemned by God. And on the third day, Jesus rose to life showing you that his payment for all of your sins has now been accepted by the Father, and the death that would otherwise be yours is now defeated and destroyed. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And we will spend the rest of our eternal lives contemplating this and rejoicing in this, in the implications of a Christ who would do all this for us. And this not only has eternal implications, but also temporal ones as well. What Jesus has done affects our lives right here and right now because we follow Jesus and therefore we expect our lives in this world to be patterned after his. And if Jesus was mistreated and rejected and even threatened in this world, what makes us think that our lives would be any different? Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When you're following someone, like I was showing the kids today, you locate yourself behind whoever it is that you're following. You're not the one deciding where you're going. Peter tried to physically locate himself in front of Jesus, between Jesus and the path that he said he was going, but that's not a position of a follower. That is the position of a hindrance, of an obstacle. It's the position of Satan, Jesus says. Peter was trying to dictate to Jesus where he thought Jesus should go because that was where Peter wanted to go. But Jesus said, get behind me. Because neither Peter, nor Satan, nor anyone else in this world would keep Jesus from fulfilling his mission to be the Christ who suffers and dies for us. So following Jesus means placing yourself behind him. And in our lives today, what does that look like? Well, that looks like being in his word. It looks like regularly receiving his means of grace. It means praying for his will to be done in your life. It means keeping your eyes fixed on him and being open to wherever he may be leading you on a day in, day out basis. But as Jesus says, it also means at times denying yourself. And that is denying your sinful nature 
Denying what your sinful nature demands a false savior to be. Denying what earthly priorities and earthly plans you may have. But instead of all that, allowing Jesus to tell you who he is for you. And also to tell you who you are in relationship to him. And so Jesus takes you and he points you to his cross. He reminds you of everything he's done for you there. And then he tells you that your life now involves taking up your own cross. And in Luke's gospel, in this passage, he even adds the the word daily picking up your cross, which means daily picking up the burden of following Jesus each and every day. And what does that mean? Well, it's the burden of not always understanding It's the burden of not always having the answers to everything we would like to have answers to. It's the burden where life actually becomes more difficult as a Christian, not easier. Because you know that the sinful world that did not accept Jesus will not accept you either. We don't choose our crosses in life. That's not how that works. But we trust that the crosses that Jesus has us bear in our own lives, and all of ours are different, that those are necessary crosses, not only to bring glory to our Father who is in heaven, but also the crosses we bear in love and service to those around us. You see, just as Jesus did, we also show lives of love and service and sacrifice. And we learn that by watching Jesus. Following Jesus does not mean that your days are always going to be filled with everything happy and healthy and wealthy. No, following Jesus does mean, though, that your days will always be filled with the certain promises from your Savior who says to you, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus promises you. Even though you may lose your life in this world, even though you may lose what this world's definition of a successful life is, even though you may be called to a life of sacrifice in ways that you never thought possible, Jesus promises you that in him, on account of all that he has done for you, you will find your life, true life, that will last forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.